missed you guys last week. And uh, it is great to be in the house of God worshiping, and um, we got to FaceTime in last week, but it was a bit, it's not the same, is it? It's not. It's really not. Like, we got to see everything that happened. We got to see, um, you know, the people who lift their hands in worship, the people who don't. (laughs) Should we call our names? No, no, we saw it, but we don't call people out. Um, but no, it was it was really cool. Like, and we actually heard um, a lot of really great p- reports, yeah. um, f- especially from Pastor Ian, obviously the visiting um, preacher. But yeah, he he had lots of love for everyone here, mm. and he was yep. just he blown absolutely away. loved it. Thought that it was a really yeah. strong um, service, but also he loves this family. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess part of the extended family, and also we are now COVID free. Yay! But there's obviously a whole bunch of people in our Yay! family. Yeah, we aren't. love you, family. And Thank you. Hopefully, you're, you're listening to the podcast because you are dedicated to this house. <laughs> I know my parents are because they're leading a lift group on on these <laughs> yeah, so Sunday to, topics. Yeah. So <laughs> um, let's just quickly pray for our family yeah. who can't be here today. Yeah. Um, it is heading into winter as well, which tends to affect some people. Um, so let's just pray. God, we thank you that, um, that in you we find um, our health, our freedom, uh, and, and everything that we could ever possibly want or need, we find in you. And so, God, we just want to pray for your health, uh, for your supernatural covering to be upon every one of our uh, family that can't be here today. Um, and we just pray for your healing touch upon them. We pray for those that have to isolate. Um, and we pray to God that you are there for them, uh, that even where they are at when they are listening to this message or even as putting aside time to worship you, we just pray for your presence to fill their place, um, their house and, and their hearts as well, God. And we pray for just a deposit of your blessing upon them in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Well, today is the Q&A. Let's not put that slide up because we actually don't have any time. Uh, no, we have zero uh, time. Yeah. Um, so over the course of this series, we have been talking about salvation and we got, got people to send in questions and we got some amazing questions. Um, in a sense, they are very common questions, but they're also very difficult questions. Yeah. And so in, uh, we're not actually going to be uh, specifically talking into those exact questions uh, because what has happened is that uh, it's emerged from these questions three big themes or three big questions that um, honestly Christianity has mulled over, has debated. I must have said something wrong. <laughs> or maybe the devil is leaving. Leave, devil. A bit weird. Um, that's for another series. <laughs> What to do about evil spirits? <laughs> uh, but we've got three big questions, and um, what I would like to just preface before we get into these three big topics is that uh, there isn't consensus across Christianity with these uh, topics. Uh, it has been debated for 2,000 years, and um, there is still debate going on, and that is completely fine. Um, in the sense that um, these topics are not central uh, close-handed topics in Christianity. For example, you say Jesus isn't uh, man or he isn't God, um, that's heresy, and we, we don't play with They're that. They're different. <laughs> we have that's different. something that we don't, uh, um, we, we see as, no, no, you're worshipping a different God. 
you're not worshiping the God of Christianity. Um, you know, uh, you could talk about the, the, the supernatural stuff, the spiritual stuff, Holy Spirit and the gifts. And there are parts of, I guess, the wider body of Christ that doesn't believe in that. That's totally cool. They're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they believe in the central tenets of Christian faith, and that's cool. Um, and so the three questions we're diving into here don't dig into those topics but they still affect our everyday lives, how we see God and how we approach God. And so we're overall going to be presenting more of our view um, as we have research, as we've studied. And this is the view that we feel best fits with uh, Scripture as we have understood it. Um, don't worry, it is not just us and our opinions. This uh, research based on lots of theologians, but we're just saying that there's also other theologians and scholars that don't agree fully with these statements that we're going to make. And that's cool. Uh, but we, what I love about this is that salvation is meant to be something that we continually reflect on and we work through. And I wonder if God has placed some of these tensions in Scripture where it's not nicely boxed up so that you can't go, oh, I've got that down pat, see you later, Jesus. I, I know what I'm doing with this thing. And so I can, I, I can walk away from, from continually reflecting on what you've done. And so some of these tensions you will find as we talk about this, the Bible says this and this, and they don't play well together, but they're both in the Word of God. <laughs> and so deal with it, wrestle with it constantly, because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day as well, the Bible does talk about the fact that there's mystery. There's always going to be a component of our faith, I think, that doesn't get worked out on this side of eternity. Yeah. Um, but then we get to spend eternity asking God all the questions, or maybe it'll all just be revealed and we'll just automatically get it. Who knows? Be um, like, yeah, to touch your forehead to mine. Yeah, and then you just you download everything. Lord. and Yeah, it'll be amazing. Half um, the people don't know anything about Star Wars here. I love didn't. Star Wars. Anyone else? <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome here in this house. <laughs> um, so, we don't even know if we're going to hit up all three of these questions today because there's so much about it. But basically, the three questions we're going to deal with is, um, how does atonement work? That's the first question. Another way to talk about this is, why did Jesus literally have to die? Okay, and that's a big deal. And there's a whole bunch of different questions associated with that. That's the first question. The second question is, what about original sin? And that's a theological term. Basically, Adam's, uh, the Bible tells us Adam sinned and allowed sin into the world. And so all men have sinned. What's that all about? We'll talk about that. And then finally, finally I think this is the one that everyone wants us to get to. I hope we run out of time before we reach there. <laughs> We're going to talk about predestination and free will. No, I think we we got to have enough time for that at the end. No. Well, if you guys um, really respond well in the first two questions, we might be able to get there. Well, how long do you guys want to stay here today? It's eleven. It's twelve o'clock. It's twelve o'clock. All right, to finish today. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about and, and we put it in that way because I think it's important that we trek along. Uh, it actually Sorry, does. <laughs> it is not. Let's talk about free will stuff. It's like all of you individualistic, Western white people. Um, so let's talk about why did Jesus have to die for my sin? In particular, some people have issue with this because the cross is a picture of violence, it, 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 and it's supposed to demonstrate God's love and mercy, but yet it's a picture of violence. And uh, as I was doing some reading and research. 
into this, there was this uh, uh, one theologian who made this um, observation that the cross is actually a horrendous way of dying and Christianity holds it as a symbol, but sometimes what we try to do is that we try to bling it up a little bit. And so we put <laughs> diamantes onto the cross and I mean, precious stones that, <laughs> onto the cross. We gold plate the cross yeah. and then we wear it around our necks. Yes. And we say, oh, look, this is the wonderful symbol of God's life. You are wearing yeah. a death yeah. trap. I Not think a dread, what, what do we call it? When, we're, well, when we were talking about it, you're like, it's the equivalent of um, wearing the electric chair, like, on your neck. On your neck. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You weirdos. It's, um, <laughs> it's graphic. Yeah, but uh, this theologian was trying to make the point that we try to tone it down. Now, I'm not saying anything about wearing a cross. If you have a cross, wear the cross. That's great. It reminds you what Jesus has done. But do we water down what happened here? Jesus died a violent, terrible death. Yeah. Yeah, and what's more, I guess, what people have struggled with is the fact that a loving father would send his son to do that. Like, a father would kill his son, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of questions that people have around why they wouldn't engage with Christianity because mm. these things are violent and graphic and, yeah. So the whole point is that Jesus had to die for our sins. So, Beck, why don't you define sin? <laughs> Sin, well, for me, sin is basically the, like, you're actively going against um, what God says to do and what the ways that he's planned out in his word. You're going against that and you're refusing his grace. You're refusing to live in reconciliation or relationship with him and with his community. So that would be my definition of sin. Yeah, we did talk about this um, last year in one of the series where I totally lost my note. I liked your definition as well a few weeks ago, which is very similar along the lines, but it's that redefining um, yes. good and evil for yourself. For yeah. yeah, we did talk about that at the end of last year. Sin is any time a human being wants to define good and evil for yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, the one uh, theologian wrote... Oh, I didn't write it down. Oh, well... <laughs> But it's a sense that, yeah, we want to do our lives ourselves. Mm. And um, so sin is anything that takes us um, away from um, the community of God, yeah. the heart of God, the person of God. Um, yeah, but I've lost it. Anyway, I might post it up at some point this week. Um, so Jesus had to die because um, sin basically drives a wedge between us and God. Sin is not just the things that we do wrong is actually the heart attitude yes. and how we define what is good and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so if we define for ourselves, for example, uh, example, example, off the top. <laughs> Have you got an example? Of sin. Of sin. Um, oh, no, no, that's not, no. So let's say you go. I slap you in the face. <laughs> I just said, I slap you in the you face. You slap me in the face. <laughs> and you might justify it by saying, Nate said something really terrible. Yeah. But... If God says slapping someone is wrong, yeah. then no matter what, how you justify it, it's still wrong. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of the heart behind it. Does that make sense? It's probably a terrible example. <laughs> it is, sorry. <laughs> uh, but Jesus had to die because all have sinned. And so there's Romans 3, 23, 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. So Jesus, His death is a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, etc. That's in Romans chapter 3. Romans deals a lot extensively with atonement, uh, with salvation, all of that. Now, as we look into um, the issue of atonement and how atonement works, there have been a number of atonement theories. Um, as we mentioned, there's a few views on this. I'll run through this quickly because it's actually quite interesting and important. Yes, so it has evolved a little bit. So the early church fathers tended towards what we call the Christus Victor view, which is Latin for Christ the Victor. Very deep. You can now all say that you speak Latin. (laughs) Christus Victor. Um, And so Christus Victor is basically that uh, Jesus beat Satan. And he beat Satan bad. (laughs) He's now the victor. And so by dying and then rising again, he has completely demolished the forces of evil. Well, in a certain sense that, yes, Christ is the victor. So it focused on the triumph of Christ. And why Jesus had to die is so that he could triumph over um, the enemy, basically. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? Especially in our Pentecostal circles, we tend to um, hold on to Jesus, our victory, and we sing a lot of songs about Jesus' victory. Now, there is a certain problem or a certain issue with this view in that this view is that before Jesus died and rose again, God and Satan were on par with each other. That's the whole problem with this view. It is good versus evil. It's a dichotomy of a God versus... They're equals, yeah. essentially, yeah. And so, Christus Victor, if Jesus didn't die on a cross, could God beat Satan? That's the question that we've got to ask ourselves. And so Jesus didn't have to die because God could beat Satan any day of the week. There's, there's no contest. Are you guys kind of following that? Yeah. Because, by the way, if you guys don't respond, we don't get to predestination, <laughs> all right? So, so that's the point. That's the problem with that view. Did Jesus have a victory? Yes. But was that victory necessary for God to be victorious? Probably not. So there's something else that is going on there. And so uh, theology continued to develop from there. And so they came up with the ransom theory. Now, the ransom theory is that uh, basically because of sin, humanity had been given over to Satan to rule. And the price of redeeming, and this is the language of the Bible, uh, redeeming, redemption, uh, a ransom, the ransom was paid to Satan in this view to bring humanity back to Christ. And Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there's that idea of Jesus' death was a payment, was a ransom, so that we could be set free from Satan. Now, again, the problem with this view is that it sets Satan up to be super powerful. Yeah. It kind of says oh, God had to die <laughs> in order that humanity could be set free from Satan. Uh, and it, it kind of people hold on to this view, kind of 
talk about it as Jesus' death was like the Trojan horse. <laughs> it was like this kind of trick uh, so that Satan would, would ultimately have the hand is over. The problem again, like with this view, is that God could probably have done it without dying. The death of Jesus is not explained by the ransom view. Jesus might use that language of having paid a ransom, but why does Satan have to be paid that ransom? That's the question that theologians have struggled with. You guys following so far? So there is the Christus Victor view, there's ransom view. And so from there, um, theologians went, you know what? Jesus' death wasn't paying Satan anything. Jesus' death wasn't necessarily going to Satan because Satan is not on the same level as God. And so, if it's not being paid to Satan, then who is Jesus paying? And this is where it gets difficult, but <laughs> trick along with me. Um, and Beck, please help me to explain this. But the payment was technically somewhat paid to God himself. Because God is the ultimate. And so, this is known as the uh, satisfaction or substitutionary view. Now, I just want to quickly mention that in some of this viewpoint, there are some theologians that say that sin dishonors God, and so the death was to bring back honor to God, basically. It's to satisfy the wrath that comes from God's dishonor. I don't tend to hold that view because the Bible doesn't say that God was dishonored. And that, I guess in our human understanding, it sort of connotates God as having this pride that like you have to like honour me or that's dishonouring of me so I'm going to separate myself from you type thing. Yeah. 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 It kind of makes it that um, Jesus' death brought God back to us rather than the view that Jesus' death brought us back to God. Um, and so there's a little bit of a tension there. Um, that is a tension because I think both can be true as well. It's hard but to we'll understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, another interesting point about these theories is that they tend to evolve when methods of governan- gov- governance evolves. Yeah. So Christus Victor was a lot about that time where there were all these, well, who's the most powerful nation? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the ransom view came a little bit later from there. Satisfaction view came in more when, um, yeah, you know, there was a bit more of that sense of our, our current uh, civilization kind of thinking. And so, um, just to spell it out there, if you want to look it up, we hold on to what is called the penal, P-E-N-A-L, penal substitutionary atonement. And it is kind of linked to the satisfaction theory, but slightly different. Now, the whole viewpoint of penal substitutionary atonement is that when we sin, we are breaking God's law. And there is a price to be paid. And there's a consequence, maybe not so much a price, but a consequence of that um, breaking of the law. We understand that. And some people don't like this, about this whole idea of having consequences and, and wrath of God uh, when it comes to breaking the law. But I want to put forward to you that if a father is only merciful and not just, towards his children, if for me and Sam, if I'm only merciful to him and I'm never upholding him to any standards, does that make me a good father or a terrible father? Terrible. Everyone suffers. 
You know, the pastor's kid that is spoiled. Oh, my Lord. The terror of the church. Um, and so how is it that we say, God, you're not merciful for being just? Mm-hmm. We are saying justice and mercy are on different ends of the spectrum. And that is a false dichotomy. Justice and mercy are sometimes very much linked. And I think as well, we're sort of saying that God can't be just, he's only merciful, or he can't be merciful, he's only just. Like, yeah. I think we paint him with one characteristic sometimes, or approach him with one characteristic sometimes, when mm. really, you know, if we're made in the image of God, then God has these complexities of character, just like we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And the picture of God's wrath is not that he is emotional, he's, um, what do you call it, uh, spontaneous? Um, like reactive? Reactive. Yeah. Uh, God's wrath is a word that is used to describe God um, uh, having, yeah, having a response to our sin. And all of us have a level of anger. Anger is not actually a wrong thing. It is how we use our anger. When someone has wronged us, if you don't feel angry, you've probably got emotional issues. It is okay to be angry, is what you do in that anger. And what God, what the Bible tends to say is that when uh, someone has wronged him and they are unrepentant and they continue to reject God and His mercy and His grace, God hands them over to their sin. That's the language of the Bible. God's wrath isn't that He smites you with His fireball from heaven. If not, none of us would be here. We've probably all incurred God's wrath at some point. But God hands you over, uh, and so that's the language of Romans in particular. So God handed, o- handed them over to the depravity of their minds so that they were seeing but never seeing, hearing but never hearing. They became dull in their senses. They became futile in their minds. Why? Because sin takes us away from everything that is good and wise and loving. And, and so, anyway, there's a whole thing there. Uh, but so when some people struggle with penal substitutionary atonement because of God's wrath, you're not looking in the Bible. God gets angry. It's true. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament get angry. There's actually this story in the book of Acts. I'm sorry if I'm rambling. But there's this story of... Um, uh, Aquinas and uh, and Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> and they they lie to God. Yeah. They walk into church and said, "I have given God everything that we got, all the profits from the sale of our property." Mm. What happens there? They die on the spot. Obviously, it wasn't a coincidental heart attack. It was a consequence of sin. So the God of the New Testament is very much there. Um, so the whole point of penal substitutionary atonement is that there is a consequence and God is a just God that has to be just and live out His justice to, to give out justice. I want you to think about this. It might be a bit extreme. But would any of us want to see Hitler in eternity saying, oh, on my deathbed, you know, like I, I apologized to Jesus and made him my Lord and Savior. And so all my sins are washed clean. And God has now, in his great mercy, made me the Lord of this city in eternity. Oh, that's, that's rough. 
we were going, no, 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 yes, he might be saved from eternal condemnation because of God's mercy, but there's still consequences that we want Hitler to experience, right? Some of you guys are like trying to be overholy. I think. I would be like, Hitler, his job in eternity is to have rotten veggies thrown at his face. That's what I think it should be. I guess in yeah. eternity they may never rot. <laughs> Good question. Tina wants to save the veggies. But anyway, we want to see God as just, and so there is a penalty. God's mercy is seen in Him taking on that penalty. Anything you want to add to that? Um, no, I think he explained it well. Yeah, yeah. Now, some people then argue, how did the Father send the Son? Mm. Why didn't the Father take it on? Well, He technically did. He did. That is our Trinitarian theology. We use these different names as God has revealed, but they are all God. Yes. It's yeah. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It wasn't that God sent someone else to die. Yeah. God sent Himself yeah. um, to die on the cross, and so He takes on. The mercy of God is seen in that it was only right that there's a consequence for our sin, but He then takes it on. And that is why we call it substitutionary. Now, there is a thought in there, which I appreciate, that the idea of um, a substitution is that Jesus takes our place and then we completely get off scot-free. And so there's someone, there's a, a theologian that's putting forward that the word representative rather than substitution might be better because God, as Jesus, as our representative, took on the consequence, but now we are still in the game, so to speak. We now still have responsibility. The consequences was taken by our representative, and now we have life, mm. and now we are put back in the game, so to speak. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think it's a really cool thought. Sometimes we think substitution. All right, Jesus got substituted, and now I'm on the bench. I've got no more responsibility. I don't do anything. And I think that also leads to the questions of um, if Jesus has been my substitute and has taken on um, the consequences of sin, then why do I still face consequences of sin in this life? Like, you know, we're kidding ourselves to think that we don't. Um, you know, if you lie to someone, there's going to be a lack of trust. If you hurt someone, you know, there's going to be that reconciliation that's needed. Mm. Um, and not only that, there's yeah, also so vicarious suffering in that yes. we live in a fallen world. Yeah. Sometimes we do the right thing and we get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, one, one of the key reasons why we hold on to this is that it most closely follows the narrative of the Bible. And so we have the temple system in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, which was to take away the sin of the people. A sacrifice took the place of the sin of the people. And that is the narrative of the Old Testament. The New Testament uses that same language. It uses the picture of the Old Testament sacrifices to help us understand what Jesus did. And so, if we want to tone down that Jesus had to die for sin, we don't understand the fullness of the consequence of sin, and we don't understand the fullness of the mercy of God. We are playing with that. When we get into any theories that doesn't necessitate that Jesus dies on the cross, we are taking away the power of the cross. 
And so we now get to live a life without the cross because the cross wasn't necessary for our atonement. I know that kind of gets into a big kind of topic there. Yeah. I just want to put out one final theory that has more recently developed. Um, it's called the moral influence theory. And the reason for this theory <laughs> technically was because people didn't like that Jesus had to die. The, the, the violence of Jesus' death was really quite overwhelming. And I was like, no, 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 this doesn't come together with my picture of a loving God. Um, but I mentioned it because it's still got some merit in it. And basically it says that Jesus died as uh, Jesus' death was meant to be this really powerful show of grace that would draw us to repentance. And however, the problem is that it doesn't say that Jesus had to die, is that Jesus chose to die that way in order that we would be really moved um, to follow him. Um, don't really think that that follows the Bible at all. Um, but then from there, um, it came this other theory called the exemplar theory, which is where Jesus died as a, an example for us, for what our lives are meant to look like as servants. Now, that theory itself by itself doesn't explain why Jesus had to die, but it's really cool in that we as Christians actually need to think about the suffering of Christ that He invites us into as well. We, we need to remember that. We, that's the whole point of blinging up the cross. Jesus had the bloody cross and we get the blingy one. No, Jesus invites us to share in His suffering. And that is something that we need to consider with the atonement that Jesus had to die and He invites us to follow me. So what does that mean for us? And when we forget that atonement was built on suffering, we are, we're invited into this really, this life that in this world looks a little bit difficult for us to reconcile. Yeah, I think sometimes it's a real comforting thought though. Like I think just this last week I was having the thought of why is loving someone so hard? Yeah. Like, God, love is patient, love is kind. Da, da, da. I'm like, I'm not being very patient right now. I'm not being very kind right now. Why is this such a struggle? And I think I just found that comforting in the sense that there is pain in love. It's actually incredibly difficult. And I think Jesus models that through that exemplar theory um, that, yeah, there's pain involved when we want to seek perfect love. Um, and so I find that as a comforting thought, actually, as I'm changed into his likeness. Yeah. yeah. So Jesus had to die, and his death was effective at saving us. Yeah. And so that's something that we have to come back to. Yeah. The weight of sin is such that there was only one way through this, yeah. and that is through Jesus' death and resurrection. So that is talking about atonement, and all of these theories have got some merit. Yes. The penal substitutionary atonement tends to explain more fully a lot more of the Bible compared to the other theories. But it's interesting to note that all of these perspectives are probably building a picture of who God is. Mm -hmm. Is God victorious? Yes. Uh, did God pay a ransom for us so that we are set free from slavery? Yes, that is still one of the pictures of the cross. Did he die a substitutionary death for us? Yes, he did. And so that also uh, 
now invites us into relationship with God. Did he also die in a way that should be an example for us as Christians? Yes. And so all of these theories are really important in that it shows us different aspects of the cross. I think that's beautiful because, you know, we are so diverse as people and I think there'd be different qualities that people see that actually attracts them to the cross and what Jesus has done and maybe those different angles actually help people on their journey to connect with Christ. So, yeah. yeah. Should we move on to Original Sin? <sighs> Let's move on to Original Let's Sin. Let's do it. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> All right, we're going to probably go through this one a little bit quicker. Yeah. Basically, um, the word Original Sin doesn't appear in the Bible. But the concept does, in Romans 5 verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So basically, Adam sinned, and then suddenly all sin. And so there is this sense that there is this original sin that did something. Um, Just to be sure, um, some people many influential, very smart people have said that how all of us have sinned is because we were all in Adam's loins. I want you to hold that picture really (laughs) tightly in your mind. We were all found in Adam's loins and therefore when he sinned, we all sin. Basically, somehow in our genetic code, um, there is a a sin. Yeah, I think it was um, Augustine. 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 Yeah, he said um, the loins one. Yeah, he's he's big on the loins <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah. So there is that theory, um, but to this day, scientists haven't isolated the sin gene yet, mm-hmm. so we don't know for sure. Um, but um, let's just probably. Uh, I'll give you my viewpoint on this, yeah. um, and we've discussed this, so it represents us. Yeah, yeah. But what Genesis. The account of the fall is for us is that it can be actual. That is a point that I'm willing to say that it's possible that the whole Genesis account was written, uh, uh, the creation account and the fall account was written as a, a type for us to understand how the world began and how we find ourselves. Um, but there's also... Uh, a, a big part of me that goes, well, it's probably actual as well. There really was an initial creation, an initial created couple, possibly. Um, I'm just not seeing that the Bible is necessarily trying to tell us that Adam and Eve were literal human beings and everything that you need to read in there, like the talking snake and, and, and the days of creation, it needed to happen in this uh, way. I think they are supposed to teach us more about how God created the world and how humans have found themselves in this current state. Could it have happened? Absolutely. Weirder things have happened. But, um, so that is an actual person that actually brought sin into the world. God created this sinless world and by his choice, Adam brought sin in. Remember, we're not talking about sin as necessarily just uh, an act of doing something wrong. The sin is not so much that Adam took a bite of the forbidden fruit. It is more that he had in his heart to define good and evil for himself. And so Adam then functions not just as a uh, real person that brought sin into the world, but how we are all sin 
is that we are all in a very similar predicament in that we are all given the choice to define good and evil for ourselves and we have all taken that. We have all taken the option to sin. Um, and so one theologian puts it this way, we all experience an individual fall and thereby join a reality that predates our own existence. So when Romans, when Paul writes to the Roman church about, um, uh, about the original sin, he's saying we are all cursed like Adam was. He wasn't saying we are all cursed because of Adam, but we are all cursed because we've all joined yeah. in with what Adam did. Yeah. And so we are all Adam's kids mm. because we all did as Adam did, yeah. basically. Yeah. That is what uh, theologians tend to be um, saying about original sin. Yeah. And, and so um, that is the theory of original sin. It's not so much that somehow if you have a, um, uh, a, a parent who is really morally bad, you are therefore morally bad. Mm. However, there is also um, the other part that you can talk about this. Generational stuff. <laughs> All the things that we just inherit because we were raised in the homes that we were raised in. Um, not necessarily how Augustine would have put it where literally, you know, your parents conceive you and sin flows through you in that way. Not biologically, but it's kind of these learned habits I guess and mindsets that we have that are actually against God's ways and how um, yeah he would have us live. Um, Tim Keller actually talks about this cool understanding of what Nate was just saying because um, he was saying how modern people really struggle with this thought of like we're kind of all in this Adam group or this Team Adam um, in this kind of way Team Adam. and he uses the language of federation and covenant but I just want to share this um, just this quote from an article that he wrote, because it really helped me to kind of understand this in a fair way, because as a modern person, I'm kind of looking at this whole Team Adam thing and being like, I don't want to opt into that. That's really unfair. Like, don't I get a say in this? Team Jesus. I've always been Team Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but Tim Keller writes this. It is the idea of being in federation with someone in a legal and historical historical solidarity with a father or an ancestor or another family member or a member of your tribe. You are held responsible or you get credit, hey, that's good, for what that other person does. Another way to put it is that you are in a covenant relationship with the person. An example is Achan, whose entire family is punished when he sins. That's in Joshua chapter 7, if you want to check that out. The ancient and biblical understanding is that a person is not what he is simply through his personal choices. He becomes what he is through his communal and family environment. So if he does a terrible crime or does a great and noble deed, others who are in federation are treated as if they had done what he had done. This is how the gospel the gospel salvation of Christ works, according to Paul. When we believe in Jesus, we are in Christ. So that's the great thing about, you know, we were in Adam, but now we get to be in Christ. Um, we are in covenant with him, not because we are related biologically, but through faith. So what he has done in history comes to us. So there's, yeah, those two pictures there. And I think that's where, for me, the picture of God's adoption is actually really important, that we understand that we are no longer under the old lineage yes. of Adam yes. when we come Praise in Christ, yeah. that he has adopted us as his yes. kids. And that's one of the things that 
you know, it was a bit of a wow moment for me in our process of adoption mm. when um, we were speaking to the lawyer to finalize um, Sam's adoption. Um, the lawyer said, do you understand why you need to do all this legal paperwork? And we're like, um, because the department told us to. <laughs> like, so Sam can oh. live with us legally. Uh, yeah, so you yeah. can't take my son away. <laughs> but one of the things that she said, which was really cool, is that Sam will no longer be entitled to an inheritance from his biological parents, and he comes under the inheritance that you guys will leave him. And I think that is something that we need to understand that God uses the picture of adoption because yes. he's saying you no longer have to live under the consequences of sin mm. and the wrath of God. Yes, And we are on. now living under the grace and the mercy of yes. God because God has chosen yes. to bring come us into family, which brings Preach us to choice. Brother. Let's Amen. talk about God's <laughs> choice versus our choice. All right, the sounds thing that good. everyone's been waiting for. Sounds good. <sighs> I love it. Um, so let's talk about free will and all of that. So there's all of these questions around um, what God has done. And so uh, God doing all of these things, can he rightly punish me because am I just fated to sin? If I'm under the lineage of Adam, that means I'm under the lineage of sin. So can God punish me rightly for that? Yeah. And then the Bible then decides to confuse us, that's me joking, um, by using the word predestined. And so let's just read a couple of them because I think it's important that we um, know that the Bible uses this word. Um, and this is what it says, Romans 8, 29 to 30, for those, he, for those whom he fought, sorry, let's try it again, for those he... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, there we go, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then later in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not mine. <laughs> Amen. So there you go, it's in the Bible. Let's pray. <laughs> Is that what you wanted, Beck? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I just want to kick this off by saying that when people talk about this, they tend to talk about two different viewpoints, which I think is ultimately unhelpful. Uh, in many ways, but in some ways can be a little bit helpful, especially if you want to dive into this and to understand it. So this was uh, particularly, a lot of people hold on to the teachings of a theologian named John Calvin. And so um, that's the predestination. Uh, those that talk about God's sovereignty and his predestination, and to some extent, the sense that we are all fated to do what we do, that's Calvinism. Um, and then from there, a guy uh, came up and said, no, I don't believe in that. Uh, I, I, I understand scripture in a different way. His name was James Arminius, I think, James or John? James. I think it's James Arminius. And he then went, no, humans have perfect free will and it's all about humans and what they do. Mm. So we do have this, when you kind of get into the free will versus predestination talk, you tend to be talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism unhelpful because the Bible describes both. Yeah. 
And so there are some aspects of Calvinism that is um, probably taking things a little bit far. And then there's a lot of stuff about Arminianism that is very unhelpful uh, for us as human beings. Do you want to start this off? Uh, Or do I have already a train and so I go on my train? You've got a train. I'll take the I'll train. All right. So you're a heckler. I'm a heckler. All right. Begs the heckler for this. So the Bible teaches us about predestination. And what I appreciate about Calvinism is that Calvin places the sovereignty and the greatness and the power of God solely in God's hands. God is not affected by humanity, God is not subject to humanity. Humanity is subject to God. Creation is subject to God. So predestination holds the sovereignty of God. I'm using a a few big words. You can listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Chew on it. Or you want to have a chat, come chat with us later. But basically, because God is God, He is able to make choices. Mm -hmm. He is going to have a will, and His will is going to be effective. Mm -hmm. That is the doctrine of predestination. Let me just put something forward that is important. Sometimes we try to water down the ooh that we feel when we hear that God predestines by saying, because God knows beginning and end, He is therefore predestining, predestining? predestining us based on what He sees us doing. That is not good theology when it comes to predestination for the sole reason that it makes God's choice subject to our choices. If that's the case, then every aspect of salvation is based on works and not on grace. Mm. Make sense? Have we blown everyone's mind already? (laughs) If salvation is truly by grace, then it has nothing to do with me. The predestination of God that we read about in the Bible is meant to be a comfort to us because it is effective because it's God's will, not mine. It's not my choice that makes me good for salvation. It's God's choice that makes me good for salvation. No, it doesn't even make me good for salvation. It's God's choice that saves me, full stop. (laughs) And so the whole idea of predestination is that because God is sovereign because God is love, because God is good, He chooses us and effectively chooses us for salvation. And so that's something that we need to hold on to. And this is something that predestination holds that I think is so beautiful. It is God that initiates salvation. It is God that sustains salvation. And it's God that completes salvation. We receive salvation. We don't make salvation happen. You did not fall out of salvation because of one bad deed. You did not fall out of salvation because of one bad thought. You hold on to salvation because it's God that initiates, God that sustains, and God that completes salvation. That is found in the Word of God. The problem with Calvinism is partly that they hold on to, or many of them hold on to something that is called double predestination. And double predestination is that God predestines some for salvation and then He predestines some for eternal damnation. The Bible does not, in my opinion, make that clear at all. When the Bible talks about predestination, uh, He always, the Bible always says it's God's love and goodness that saves us. It's not so much that He 
then chooses to reject us. Mm. There is still God's choice ultimately in this, mm. and this is where there is a lot of mystery as we so talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, the mystery of how God's will interacts with our will. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 So, now the problem with Arminianism that is something that we need to be really careful about is that it in my opinion, goes way too far into talking about free will. And I think why, in particular, people today struggle with that is because free will is so necessary in our concept for our individual identity and our individual dignity. We think about choices in terms of our dignity in today's culture. And we've got to be really careful that we don't read what our culture says into the Word of God. Yeah. We need to draw a line somewhere. And that's where I hold on to many tenets of predestination because number one is in the Word of God. But it helps me to understand that a lot of things that our culture says is not very helpful. Mm. If my dignity is based on my choice, then I can choose whatever I want to, which means that I get to determine what is good and evil, which means that I get to be sinful. So if dignity is based on sin, then I don't want to have any dignity. Have I just... <laughs> I have met a lot of blank stares there. Our world tells us that dignity is based on me being able to determine what is good and evil for myself. That's dangerous. That's sin. That is why sin, as the Bible describes, has so blinded us to what good is truly. And we can only understand what good is truly when we come to the one who is truly good, yeah. who is God. However, the Bible also definitely describes the responsibility of humanity. Yeah. And so that is something that we need to come back to time and time and time again. Yeah. Um, let me read that one. So in Colossians 1, to 23, this is what Paul writes. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, this is Jesus, in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that's God's predestination, his choice. He saves you. If indeed you continue in the faith, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has become proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Jesus did all these to present us as holy and um, blameless if you continue in the faith. Which one, God? Both. Yes. It's one of those classic, like, God predestines us. It is His will that saves us. Mm. You need to choose Him. <laughs> Which one is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's both. Mm. The Bible is very clear about both. Yeah. Uh, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Mm. Hang on, if I'm already elected, then why do I need to confirm it? Confirm it. Yeah. Mm. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. What are these qualities? Go read 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. It talks about adding to your faith, goodness, knowledge, perseverance, self-control, love for others, all of these wonderful Christian virtues that we are meant to live out. When we live out God's commands, we are confirming our election. 
So there's a responsibility for us to live in a certain way, not to save ourselves, but to confirm our election. How does that work? Well, let me explain it to you. I can't. (laughs) So over to you, Beck. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, what's important is to sort of look at some of the evidence in Scripture that we do, in fact, have free will. And I think just like off the top of my head, some of the evidence is the fact that in the beginning, when God created man and woman, um, he gave us purpose. He gave us the right to rule and reign over the earth. And he was saying, go, be fruitful, multiply. That means that we have agency. That means that we have, um, in a sense, uh, we need to make decisions in order to do that, right? Everyone would know that decisions are a part of that. And so that's one of the ways. And even with God's commands that he gives us, obviously there's choice there. He's saying, obey my commands, because we can choose not to, but we can choose to as well. Um, Thomas Aquinas says it this way, man has free will, otherwise counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards and punishments would be in vain. It would be ridiculous. It's like God playing, you know, with puppets. It's silly. Um, But one of the beautiful things I find in Scripture as well is the fact that God's given us the ability to repent. And so that necessarily means that we have free will because we've out of free will, we've chosen to do something and we actually need to turn around from that and we can. God has given us a way back through repentance. So, yeah, those are some of like the evidence I guess we can see that God has in fact given us free will. Yeah. yeah. And so we need to be really careful because Arminianism says everything is our responsibility mm. and that scares me. Yeah. Because it's no. like, no. We can't hold this will together. Like, that's saved. not on us. <laughs> the only way I've been saved is by grace through faith. Amen. It's not yeah. anything more than that. Yeah. At the same time, going too far into the predestination uh, yeah, I space do is like, like <laughs> yeah. God must have chosen me to sin today. Yeah. I'm like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like, God chose me to have all the chocolate, all of Sam's Easter chocolate. <laughs> It must be a God's choice. He predestined me to be a fat slob. She's giving away out. <laughs> no, there is responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about this is that all of those that wrote about election, the apostles, they all suffered mightily for the gospel. And this is what um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. It says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I suffer shipwrecks. I suffer whippings and beatings. I suffer imprisonment. I suffer the lack of food. I suffer dehydration. I suffer at the hands of many people. I've been insulted, spit at, beaten. For the sake of the elect, that they may have salvation. Paul, you're not making sense. It's a great mystery. And if the early church, if the early disciples, if those disciples and apostles saw that it was necessary for them to die for the gospel, that some people might be saved through their efforts, how much more do we need to get a deeper revelation that yes, God is the one that saves. When we run this church, we want to see people saved. And for many years, I struggled with the sense of like, come on, more people should be saved. More people should be saved. I need to work harder at this. And to some extent, yes, but I also needed to learn. No, no, this is what God does. I'm simply being faithful to what he's 
called me to, and I'm only doing what I see the Father telling me to do. And that should be, I don't do that perfectly, but that should be my heart and my position. And so this is, predestination is not a way for us to cop out and say, I don't need to do anything. In fact, predestination is, is, is such that we need to go, if God is the one that saves, He's the one that sustains me, then I need to be going to Him all the more to understand and to be living under the sustenance of God my Saviour. And so this is actually a call to be more obedient to Him and to be aligning our wills with God's will. Um, and so experience the life of God in us. That's probably as far as we can take this in the time that we've got. You know, we've already gone over. We hope that's been helpful. Um, and yeah, definitely, if, you, if you've got some specific questions, more than happy to have a chat. And honestly, go to Bible college. Like, seriously, <laughs> some of these things that we've been unpacked, you can do that over a course of like 10 weeks or something in Bible college. Honestly, huge advocate for it. These are really great questions, guys. Thank you, um, people listening to the podcast, for sending in your questions we love the fact that you guys are searching. Um, yeah, but I think we need to mm. end it there. <laughs> but hopefully we have also left you with a takeaway. That God is the one that saves. God has done all that is necessary. He is a God of love. He's a God that uh, wants your ultimate good. And he's working towards that. That's what the Bible teaches us. He has done what is necessary. He's doing what is necessary. Um, and what we need to do is to respond and what we need to do is to come to Him mm. and to, um, I think the word responsibility has the word respond in it. Mm. We, we are responding to what God has already done. Yeah. And so as we close this morning, can I just pray for us mm. that we have that desire to yeah. respond fully, yeah. uh, wholeheartedly um, to our God. Yeah. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your great love. I pray that if there's anyone listening to this, that struggles to see your love in um, the picture of the cross. I pray that there will be a greater, deeper, fuller clarity as to why we needed a Savior. I pray that that would move us to come deeper into Scripture and to understand what you've done, that you have saved us, redeemed us, cleaned us, adopted us into your family. And I pray to God that that would uh, lead to us wanting to respond fully and totally to you, God. I pray that we would submit ourselves to your will. We will seek your will out in the day to day that we can live under your grace. We can live with your life in us. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much, church. I had lots of fun. <laughs> Hopefully it's, um, it has been enlightening for you um, and challenging because you know what? The Bible tells us, as Beck mentioned right at the start of today, that we're meant to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. It's not something that's meant to be like, oh, that's a nice gift. Let me put it in my pocket. This is, this is the ultimate. <laughs> this is something that we really need to fully understand. So thanks so much, guys. Have some morning tea. If you want to have a chat, have a chat. It's wonderful to see people's faces, by the way. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.